Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. I'm really delighted to, to welcome our, our guest this evening, Bernard Haeckel from Princeton University, as you can see down there. Yeah. Um, it's a real pleasure to, to welcome Bernie, as he's also known. An old friend. I've known him for 30 years, and uh, he hasn't changed a bit in all that time. You can't see him, so you can't tell. <coughs> but in one respect, in a very important respect, he has changed a lot, which is that he's become in those 30 years since I've first met him a, a, a very uh, distinguished scholar, uh, what they call in French a pointure, a source of reference, uh, a sought-out uh, source of, of, of guidance and counsel to many people in his field, which is broadly Islamic studies, modern Arabic history, Islamic history. Um, the sort of join the dots parcours or biography to, to Bernie, uh, the short form of it is just Georgetown, Oxford, NYU, Princeton. Uh, he studied, did his BA at Georgetown and then came to Oxford, uh, first to St. Anthony's College, then St. John's College, Oxford, where he he did his MA and then what they call DPhil in Oxford, which is a PhD in modern uh, Middle Eastern studies, but in the history of, of Yemeni um, thought, specifically on the work of Shoukani, who was a sort of synthesizer of the legal systems of the Sunnis and, and the Zaydis. And you might say I've got that completely wrong, but Shoukani was an extremely important, um, is an extremely important figure in the, the history of of Islamic revivalism, if one can say that. And his book, indeed, Bernie's book that came, that was produced from his PhD, published by Cambridge in 2003, is, is titled Revival and Reform in Islam, The Legacy of Muhammad Ashokani. Um, so his, his teaching and research interests lie at the juncture of the intellectual, political, and social history of the Middle East, with particular emphasis on the countries of the Arabian Peninsula. So I've already mentioned Yemen. He spent two years in Yemen. Um, but he's broadened his interests, his fieldwork, uh, to the, the Arabian Peninsula writ, writ large and spends a lot of his time in Saudi Arabia. He has a side interest in the effects of energy resources and rents on politics and society. And I should mention that when I welcome Bernie back to NYU Abu Dhabi, it's not because this is his second trip back. It must be his sixth or seventh or eighth. He indeed taught one of our J-term courses, the J-term courses and the January courses, which are incredibly intense for the students and the teachers, and he taught that on energy uh, and oil in the Gulf. And he teaches that also at uh, Princeton. Uh, another concern of his work, the main concern of his work, in fact, the key concern now is the reception of reformist ideas uh, and the analysis of the Salafi heritage in contemporary debates among Sunnis as well as the Zaidi heritage among Shis. Um, he's had many prestigious fellowships, which I'm very envious. He spent a year at the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton, uh, a period of his life which I blame, well, I blame that period of his life on the fact that he ended up leaving New York and going to Princeton when the Princetonites must have got wind of Bernie's presence in Princeton and lured him to Princeton away from NYU. 
And it's a decision he says he doesn't regret. <laughs> it's just his colleagues who regret it. Um, he also had a Carnegie Fellowship in early 2000s. Um, he's done fieldwork, as I said, in Yemen and the, and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So to, f to finish off my brief introduction, I want to give him the floor. I just want to indicate a few of his important publications. Actually, a lot of the dissemination of Bernie's thought is not in publications, in the printed form, but on TV, on television. Uh, I can't remember the amount of times I've switched on the TV and, and seen Bernie Haeckel talking to someone about some as contemporary aspect of, of the modern Middle East, some hot aspect, some difficult, knotty problem that he is holding forth about, always in, in a very clear and lucid manner. Um, he's very sure of his opinions, but they're always well backed up. Um, so just to give you a sense of his, of his writings, he's currently preparing a book on the history of Saudi Arabia, but uh, he, among the articles that he's written, recently written, well, he edited a book on Saudi Arabia in transition in which he wrote the article, Oil in Saudi Arabia's Culture and Politics, from Tribal Poets to Al-Qaeda's Ideologues. Uh, he also wrote an introduction called The Expansion of Wahhabi Power in Arabia, 1798-1932, British documentary records for the Cambridge Archives editions. Uh, he's written an article called What Makes a Madhab a Madhab. A Madhab, of course, is a, a, a school of law in Islam. Zaidi debates on the structure of legal authority. He's written for Fault Lines in Global Jihad, an article entitled Al-Qaeda and Shiism. In the New York Cambridge History of Islam, he authored Western Arabia and Yemen during the Ottoman period. And for Global Salafism, Islam's new religious movement, he wrote the article on the nature of Salafi thought and action. Uh, and without further ado, I give you Bernard Haeckel. Very much. Um, thank you. <laughs> um, so I I, uh, I have a lot to get through today, and and it's a very sensitive topic. So I have to stick to my script. I normally don't stick to a script. I can speak without a script, but today is is an exception. I'd like to thank NYU, uh, uh, the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute, and in particular, Professor Philip, Philip Kennedy, the Institute's vice editor, uh, vice provost, I'm sorry, for public programming, as well as the general editor of the Library of Arabic Literature, LAL. LAL represents a major milestone uh, in Arabic and Islamic studies, and my field owes a huge debt of gratitude uh, to Phil and to NYU uh, for its efforts. I hope my talk, that my talk today will fit in well with a series that I saw advertised all over campus here titled Shattering Muslim Stereotypes. And there is no greater stereotype than the association many in the West make between Islam and terrorism. It is this alleged knot that I hope to untangle today, showing you that the putative relationship between jihadism and Islam is not only complicated, but also willfully misconstrued. I'll be focusing in particular on one country, Saudi Arabia, and one form of Islam, Salafism or Wahhabism, and how these have been misrepresented in the West and for what ends. 
it's generally assumed in the U.S. and Europe that Saudi Arabia is largely to blame for the rise of Islamist militancy, terrorism, and the global jihadist phenomenon. In fact, this is perhaps the one issue on which both sides of the political spectrum in the United States, Democrats and Republicans, agree. The claim against the Saudi kingdom essentially goes along the following lines. Saudi Arabia has funded Salafism. Jihadists are Salafis, mostly. Therefore, Saudi Arabia is responsible for jihadism. This reasoning is incorrect. I'll try to show in this presentation why this is so, speculate on why such a misperception has become widely accepted, and conclude on the genuine connection and affinity between Salafism and Islamist terrorist movements that is independent of Saudi Arabia. I will argue that the, that the contention is wrong because it ignores the broad political ideological context in which jihadism was formed and also betrays considerable ignorance of Islam, the modern history of the Middle East, and the nature of Islamic political ideologies and movements. If jihadism were monocausal, by which I mean one, due to one thing, namely that Saudi Arabia is responsible for its creation and perpetuation, its solution would be very simple and straightforward. One would basically pressurize Saudi Arabia to desist. Unfortunately, it isn't that simple. This is not a theoretical or academic exercise because a great deal hinges on the truth of my argument. For example, what will the future of US-Saudi relations be? What has been Saudi Arabia's role in helping perpetuate American global hegemony during and after the Cold War? What will be the outcome of the court trials based on the recently passed US law titled Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism, otherwise known as JASTA, which allows 9-11 victims' families to sue the Saudi government in US, courts, in, in U.S. courts in contravention of the doctrine of sovereign immunity. How is jihadism to be understood, and what has been the role of the U.S. in its creation and unfolding? What is jihadism's relationship to the religion of Islam and the broader trends of Islamic intellectual, theological, and legal history? What can be said about the role of the Muslim Brotherhood, the brutal secular Arab autocracies, and the Islamic Republic of Iran in creating and fostering Islamic militancy? In what ways are Al-Qaeda and ISIS products of Saudi Arabia's religious policies? So I hope to address some of these questions today. Now the locus of the claim. The claim that Saudi Arabia is culpable for jihadism can be found in numerous media articles, policy papers, academic writings, and even in President Obama's statements to Jeffrey Goldberg, for example, in The Atlantic magazine. The former president laments how, quote, he has watched Indonesia, a country he grew up in, in you know, for a few years, how, how he watched Indonesia, Indonesia gradually move from a relaxed, syncretistic Islam to a more fundamentalist, unforgiving interpretation, unquote. And when asked about the, the cause for this transformation, President Obama blames, quote, the Saudis and other Gulf Arabs who have funneled money, a large number of imams and teachers, into the country. In the 1990s, the Saudis heavily funded Wahhabist madrasas, seminaries that teach a fundamentalist form of Islam favored by the Saudi ruling family." Unquote. This is the president. It should come as no surprise that Iran and its supporters share, exactly, share the exact same view and have been pushing this line too, namely that Saudi Arabia is a source of religious fundamentalism and violence. 
No media outlet has been more rigorous and systematic in making the case against the kingdom of Saudi Arabia than the New York Times newspaper. In a spate of op-eds and investigative articles on Saudi Arabia's religious missionary activity, the New York Times blames the kingdom for changing the irenic, which means peaceful, and tolerant nature of, quote, traditional Islam, unquote. In Kosovo, Afghanistan, the West, and virtually everywhere in the rest of the world. It is argued that Saudi Arabia has promoted Salafism, which is a literalist and intolerant version of the faith. I'll come to that in a bit. Through the construction of mosques, educational institutions, the provision of imam salaries, and scholarships to study in Saudi universities. This, the New York Times argues, has altered the local nature of Islam, which was tolerant and open, to produce a generation of zealots ready to join the jihad against the West. In these articles, those interviews to substantiate the claims against the kingdom are typically non-Salafi clerics who have not benefited from Saudi largesse and have apparently seen a loss in parishioners to Salafi-oriented mosques. This is the case of Kosovo, for example. Strangely, Salafis and Saudis are rarely, if ever, interviewed or quoted in these pieces, in these New York Times pieces. At its core, the argument relies on a transactional assumption that Saudi funding has altered the religious beliefs and practices of many millions of Muslims around the globe, but adduces no proof for how or why this has taken place. One is expected to assume that money alone changes people in matters of conscience, <clears throat> something that I believe is far from certain, and one is expected to ignore local dynamics that might be responsible for the alleged conversion to Salafism. Finally, one is expected to believe that Salafis are more inclined to violence and militancy than other non-Salafi Muslims. I've spoken to a number of New York Times journalists about this matter. As you can imagine, I'm quoted in, in the Times quite often. And they these journalists have relayed that it is the newspaper's editors who have been advancing this narrative about the kingdom's role in global Islamic faith and politics, setting specific storylines months in advance in editorial meetings for the journalists to follow up on. To be fair, the journalists at the Times sometimes push back when the facts on the ground don't match up. Scott Shane and Robert Worth, for example, have been exemplary in the objective quality of their work. These are both journalists at the Times. The reasons for the editors being so keen on vilifying Saudi Arabia remains, or the reasons remain, a matter of speculation. One Times journalist who wishes to remain anonymous, as you can imagine, mentioned that the editors, being committed American liberals, have been unnerved by the rise and militancy of Al-Qaeda and ISIS, but wish to avoid locating the source of the violence in Islam itself and thereby risk endorsing Bernard Lewis's and Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations, Clash of Civilizations thesis. Instead, they have sought to single out the Saudis for blame. And this is apt, given that Saudis promote intolerance and misogyny and have a great deal of oil wealth with which to do this. Put differently, there are, quote, good Muslims, and there are, quote, bad Muslims. This is me quoting the title of Mahmoud Mamdani's book, which explores, explores American views of Muslims and of Islam during the Cold War. Now, according to my time source, the approach of locating the source of all problems in Saudi Arabia serves as a bomb for the liberal conscience. I am not an Islamophobe, because it is the Saudis or the Salafis or the Wahhabis who are the bad element. Not 
all Muslims. So that's the kind of bomb. Of course, framing the story in this way also makes for a straightforward and simplistic, albeit incorrect, explanation of a complex <coughs> religio-political phenomenon like the Islamic revival that has gripped the Middle East and beyond since the 1970s, and of jihadism. So the argument is something like, let's blame the Saudis and their promotion of intolerance. It is an effective conceit and makes for good copy. One additional effect of this narrative lies in concealing the tangled and highly complicit role of the United States in promoting Islamism from at least the 1950s as a counter ideology to communism and as a mobilizing force in the fight, in the fight against leftists and communists all around the world. What lends further credibility to the New York Times, quote, good Muslim, bad Muslim, unquote, narrative is that many anti-Salafi Muslims, whether in the West or elsewhere, have made similar claims about Saudi Arabia's nefarious role in the export of intolerance and violence. One of the first to do so, to do this, both before and after 9-11, is Sheikh Hisham Kabbani, a Lebanese-American Naqshbandi Sufi. In statements to the U.S. government, Kabbani claims, without adducing any proof, that the vast majority of mosques in the U.S. are controlled by extremists associated with Salafism. This is a lie. Among the academic community, Professor Khalid Abul Fadl of UCLA has been prominent, a prominent critic of Salafism. Two, in such books as The Great Theft, Wrestling Islam from the Extremists, among other publications, he makes these repeated claims against the Salafis, against the Saudis. In these, the violence is entirely blamed, is, is entirely Salafism's fault. And among the official government community in the United States is one Ms. Farah Pandit, a Kashmiri-American diplomat and policy analyst who has advised the George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations and was appointed, quote, special representative to Muslim communities, unquote, by, Secretary, by former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Pandit has been active in devising the countering violent extremism programs, what are called CVE, in American political government jargon. The, the CVE programs for the US government, um, she's been devising them and helping promote them. And, in, and she blames Saudi Arabia fully for jihadism. Another example of the same phenomenon is the secular and gifted Algerian novelist and journalist Kamal Dawood, someone I greatly admire, by the way, but who wrote in the New York Times, and here I quote, Wahhabism, a messianic radicalism that arose in the 18th century hopes to restore, to restore a fantasized caliphate centered on a desert, a sacred book, and two holy sites, Mecca and Medina. Born in massacre and blood, it manifests itself in a surreal relationship with women, a prohibition against non-Muslims treading on sacred territory, and ferocious religious laws that translates into an obsessive hatred of imagery and representation, and therefore art, but also of the body nakedness and freedom. Saudi Arabia is a Daesh, another word for ISIS, that has made it, unquote. This is Dawood. Leaving aside the multiple errors of fact in the writings of those mentioned above. For example, Saudi, for example, Wahhabism is not messianic, never has been. It's not interested in establishing a caliphate, and never will be. 
Taking the claims and arguments of the anti-Salafi, anti-Saudi Arabs and Muslims at face value is problematic because in each instance the argument is rooted in a history of intra-Muslim and intra-Arab polemics. Sufi versus Salafi, Ash'ari versus Salafi, liberal versus originalist Muslim, secular versus Islamist, you know, the list of disputes internal to the Arab and Muslim world are endless. More important still for being skeptical about these claims is the poorly understood relationship between intolerance and violence in the Islamic context or, for that matter, in other religious communities. It's assumed by the New York Times editors and journalists and those anti-Salafis mentioned above that such a connection exists between intolerance and violence and that violence is a necessary consequence of intolerance. Is this indeed the case? I believe the alleged connection is far from conclusive. So let me say a word or two about intolerance and violence. We all know that religiously intolerant people generally do not resort to violence, and that in fact very few do. People in the US, for example, in the United States, who are vehemently opposed to those who perform abortions on religious grounds, do not habitually or nor necessarily resort to blowing up abortion clinics. Some do, of course, but they represent a very small minority of anti-abortionists. In New York City, there are entire neighborhoods of ultra-Orthodox Jews, otherwise known as the Haredim, whose views on gender relations and on the regulation and defense of the community's social and religious boundaries bear considerable resemblance to Salafi teachings, including the harsh treatment through ostracism of those Jews who abandoned the community. Yet the Haredim don't engage in violence on religious grounds. And when it comes to politics, they're organized and manage to extract the maximum concessions from the political system. They fund their schools and other community programs very ably through organization. Similarly, a majority of Salafis, while they may have intolerant views of non-Salafi Muslims and of non-Muslims, do not resort to violence, either as individuals or in an organized fashion. In matters of religion, Salafis, like the Jewish Haredim, are obsessed with issues pertaining to ritual law and a, and a desire to keep at bay the influences of modern secular culture. When it comes to politics, the posture most Salafis adopt is that of obedience to the Muslim ruler, even if he is unjust and despotic. Although, of course, they would prefer a just Muslim ruler. In effect, Salafis, most Salafis, I mean, the vast, vast majority of Salafis, so 99% of Salafis, delegate political matters, including the crucial question of armed struggle, that is jihad, to the government, and are therefore often labeled quietists. If and only when the head of state declares an offensive war, what is called jihad al-talab in Arabic, will traditional Salafis acknowledge this to be necessary. The exception, of course, is when a non-Muslim army invades their land, let's say Afghanistan or Iraq, in which event the rules of defensive war, what is called in Islamic law, jihad al-dafa, prevail, and the ruler's views become moot. The defensive war doctrine is not exclusive to the Salafis, because all Muslims, in fact, all human beings, believe in defensive war. Uh, but certainly all Muslims who follow the classical formulations of Islamic law uphold it too. You are to defend yourself against an enemy that takes over your territory. The majority of Salafis respect the, expect the ruler to adhere to and apply Islamic law and to consult with the religious scholars, but they shun organized political activism, especially what they call, quote, partyism or partisanship 
Hezbiyah, seeing this as a cause, cause of divisiveness and factionalism among the believers, which is forbidden in Islam. In short, most Salafis are neither violent nor political in the sense of being organized and mobilized for action, violent or otherwise around an ideology. And when they are engaged in politics, as they have been in Egypt, for example, since 2011, uh, they support the status quo, even if it is authoritarian. They are mostly anti-jihadi, which is one reason the Saudi state has largely used Salafis to fight and defeat jihadist ideologies and its supporters. If you go to the Ministry of the Interior in Saudi Arabia, it's full of Salafis, and they are the, the key people who are fighting the jihadists. Um, now let me talk about Saudi Arabia's missionary activity. It is this doctrine of quietism, more recently labeled madkhalism or jamism, if you're really an inside baseball Salafi follower like myself. Uh, it is this doctrine of quietism which explains why some Salafis do not appear as agents of political change, i.e. as Islamists. They don't appear until the mid-1980s when political activists also claiming to be Salafi emerge on the scene in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. The question has to be asked, why is it only since the 1980s have some, uh, have some Salafis mobilized politically and produced ideological tracts? Why not earlier? After all, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has been promoting Salafism overseas since at least the mid-1920s, six decades earlier, starting with financial subsidies to scholars like Muhammad Rashid Rida and Muhammad Hamid al-Fuqi of Jamiyat Ansar al-Sunnah al-Muhammadiyah in Egypt, for example. The aim of this effort has been to make Salafism, the Saudi effort at promoting Salafism, the aim of the Saudi effort has been to make Salafism appear more mainstream, that is, more Sunni Orthodox, and in so doing, give legitimacy to the Saudi claim of being the guardian of Islam's two holiest mosques and a leader of Sunni Muslims. This policy has to be understood against the background of persistent and centuries-old vilification of Saudi Salafis. Since the early 1740s, the Salafis of the Saudi realm have been the target of attack from what I call metropolitan Sunnis whether in Basra or Baghdad, Damascus, Cairo, or Istanbul, who saw, the, who saw the Salafi Wahhabis as heretics and schismatics, seeking to undermine Islam from within, and especially through control of the pilgrimage to the holy sites in the Hejaz, which is in Western Arabia, where Mecca and Medina are. The Saudi effort at projecting Salafism in the 20th century was not an offensive project, but a defensive one against a series of attacks from a variety of Muslim and secular opponents. The Saudi government, through its religious organizations and members of the royal family, has sponsored institutions and scholars and missionaries all around the world. I'll present briefly these efforts in India and in the U.S. to illustrate that this policy was hardly an attempt to foment violent extremism. In fact, quite, quite the contrary was the aim. Something quite the contrary was the aim. It is not known for certain, but a figure of tens of billions of U.S. dollars is cited as the sum Saudi Arabia has spent globally on this effort from its inception. Substantively, the content of the missionary activity was to promote, to promote a Salafi theology which stressed a pared-down conception of monotheism, what is called Tawheed in Arabic, with an emphasis on something called monolatry, now, which means directing all worship exclusively to God and to no one else. Salafism, often labeled Wahhabism, argues for the rejection of the, quote, 
polytheistic, unquote, teachings and practices often associated with Sufis and Shiites, which violate the doctrine of monolatry, the doctrine of the exclusive worship of God. It also emphasizes the increased dependence on the traditions of the Prophet Muhammad and the consensus of the Prophet's companions in the formulation of theology and law, as well as the reliance on a particular tradition of Islamic teachings centered on the books of, a, of the medieval Syrian scholar Ibn Taymiyyah, Taqiyuddin Ahmed Ibn Taymiyyah, who died in 1328, and the teachings of his students. Ibn Taymiyyah is important because he defined faith as more than the inner belief in and the public acknowledgement of the one true God. Many infidels, according to Ibn Taymiyyah, share this belief in one God, including the Meccan polytheists who opposed the Prophet Muhammad. True faith entails such acknowledgement that there's only one God, of course, but more importantly, it involves the exclusive worship through outward visible signs and acts of God alone. This is what is called Tawheed al-Uluhiyya in their theology. Anyone whose behavior does not conform to this practical realization of the faith is a sinner and potentially an unbeliever. This is the activist stick that the Salafis wield and which other Muslims tend not to emphasize. Because Sufis and Shiites are known to visit and worship at the shrine tomb complexes of saints and imams, they're considered by Salafis to be habitual violators of the doctrine of faith. This then leads to their anathematization or their excommunication, what is called takfir in Arabic. But on this point, the point of, of takfir or excommunication, there's a debate among Salafis about whether the excommunication is to be made in general. That is, all those who believe in uh, or perform X are infidels. Or for specific individuals, this person who believes in or performs X is an infidel. This difference between the general and the particular is very important for politics and for action. Takfir, excommunication, has legal implications as to whether sanctions, including violence, can or should be carried out against an infidel. In general, one condemns a class of beliefs or acts as opposed to specific individuals. And there is no effective sanction for the general condemnation of a particular act or belief. And in the case of condemning an individual, punishment can only take place in Islamic law and in Salafi law after due process, that is a court proceeding, which involves testimony and the opportunity, the opportunity of repentance by the accused. Historically, Saudi Salafis have only engaged in physical violence against Sufis, Shiites, and other non-Salafi Sunnis when the ruler has sanctioned this in the name of jihad, such as during the expansionist wars of the first Saudi state from 1744 to 1818, and later in the first quarter of the 20th century under what is called the, 30, the third Saudi state, which is the present kingdom of Saudi Arabia. After the Saudi conquests were realized, Shiites, and to a lesser extent Sufis, continue to labor under a system of social, political, and at times economic discrimination, one that is sanctioned by the Salafis and by the state. However, warfare and violence against, whether against Shiites, Sufis, or non-Salafi Sunnis, ceased with the decision of the founder of the modern kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Abdul Aziz ibn Saud, this gentleman here, who died in 1953, he decided to end the state of jihad in 1930 
after he defeated his own militant Salafi warriors who had risen up against him for not being pure and enough uh, and, and, um, and loyal to the tenets of the faith, these people who opposed him uh, were called brethren who are obedient to God, uh, otherwise known as uh, Ikhwan, and they had refused to heed the king's command to stop the warfare. Ibn Saud, this king, now an absolutist monarch, understood that the modern political order required him to confine his ambitions to a territorial state and to end all jihad. Otherwise, British imperial power would punish him with its overwhelming military superiority. It should be recalled that aerial bombardment of civilian populations, especially of civilian populations, was a tactic first adopted by the Royal Air Force in the Middle East, and Ibn, Ibn Saud, this gentleman, understood its effects. Ibn Saud also quickly realized that in the post-colonial political landscape of the Middle East, with its more powerful states to the east, north, and west, by which I mean Iran, Iraq, and Egypt, the Saudi state may not survive without Western protection against external aggression. The rapidity of the transformation of what was in effect a jihadist expansionist state based on more traditional Islamic legal norms into a monarchical state allied with Western imperial power is one of the notable events of the first half of the 20th century. This, the discovery in the kingdom of vast quantities of oil in 1938 by a consortium of American companies lubricated this dynamic, as it continues to do until today. Ever since, Saudi Arabia has been a loyal ally of Western power, not to mention maybe even servant, in particular of the United States. And domestically, the Saudi government has not carried out the wishes of some of the more doctrinaire Salafis who have argued, for example, for the forcible conversion of the Shiites or their physical elimination. From Ibn Saud's time, this man's time, the Saudi state has learned to wield religion as an instrument of power and domination within the country and as a tool for projecting soft power internationally to help bolster its legitimacy and survival. Now let me say a word about Saudi soft power what I call Saudi soft power. As mentioned earlier, the propagation of Salafism abroad has been a determined effort of the Saudi state from the 1920s. But this campaign became more organized and systematic under King Faisal in the 1960s, in part because the state now had more resources at its disposal and its institutional capacities had developed more fully. The other reason is the context of the Cold War. With, cap with the capitalist West pitted against the communist East and with regional states siding with one or the other of the rival camps. For example, Egypt's Jamal Abdel Nasser with his expansionist Arab nationalist and socialist ideologies aligned himself with the Eastern Bloc and represented an existential threat to the Saudi monarchy, which he labeled a reactionary capitalist lackey. Interestingly, the use of Islam as an ideology to counter communism was initially suggested to the Saudis by the Eisenhower administration, but was turned down by King Saud, who died in 1969 but reigned from 53 to 64. We have a picture. These are, these are just show-and-tell pictures, really. I'll get back to the graves in a second. But let me show you Eisenhower and Saud. These are the two gentlemen in question. Eisenhower, in 1957, wanted Saudi support to help topple the regime in Damascus 
because of its close relationship with Moscow. Here is how the offer is described by Michael Duran in his book on Eisenhower. I quote, Eisenhower wrote to King Saud and expressed his fear of the, quote, danger that Syria will become a Soviet communist satellite, unquote. Promising American support, he appealed to the king on the basis of religion. He said, Eisenhower said to the king, in view of the special position your majesty is keeper of the holy places of Islam, I trust that you will exert your great influence to the, to the end, that this atheistic creed of communism will not become entrenched at a key position in the Muslim world, unquote. Eisenhower. But the king, that is King Saud, had little interest in Eisenhower's jihad. With the fall of the Mutawakkilite monarchy in Yemen in 1962 and the arrival of Egyptian troops in Sana'a to help prop up a republican regime led by military officers, the kingdom faced a much more serious and immediate challenge, just like it does today in Yemen. Crown Prince King Faisal, who was now, by the way, this is Nasser, and this is Faisal. Uh, I will put this slide here. Now, King Faisal, who was now in charge, would not be as reticent as his brother Saud in, quote, deploying Islam, unquote. He bankrolled the royalist regime in Yemen, but also created the institutional framework for pan-Islamic institutions that would propagate what he called the Islamic Solidarity Movement. He also fostered a number of institutions, such as the Islamic University in Medina, for the education of foreign Muslims, the Muslim World League for coordination amongst states around Islamic causes, the Islamic Development Bank for economic aid for Muslim states, among many other bodies. In addition, King Faisal highlighted the plight of the Palestinians as an Islamic cause, no doubt to counter its effective use by Arab nationalists like Nasser, who wielded it as a cudgel against, quote, reactionary, unquote, um, pro-Western monarchies. But King Faisal's pan-Islamic efforts well, went well be, uh, beyond Palestine, and Saudi v uh, news bulletins of the period are full of accounts of the king's many visits to countries with Muslim populations in Africa, Asia, and elsewhere, in which he pleaded the cause of Islamic solidarity. He set up Islamic institutions in these countries and funded the building of mosques. One of these countries is India. A brief discussion of Saudi missionary activities here and efforts is illustrative of Riyadh's policies and underscores that jihadism was not part of the agenda. So Salafism in India. India has one of the largest population of Muslims in the world, around 180 million Muslims, which makes it the second largest after Indonesia. It is notable, however, that there have only been a handful of global jihadists from India. Salafis, locally called Ahli Hadith, have an indigenous history independent of Arabia that goes back to the 18th century. It's often neglected that in the 19th century, India's Muslims were a wealthy, perhaps the wealthiest, and the most influential Islamic community in terms of education, social and religious reform, and activism in the world at the time. In this period, Indian Salafis were the most prominent in the world in terms of influence, scholarship, and financial resources. They were to Salafism then what Saudi Arabia is to the movement today. One of them, a man called Nawab Sadiq Hassan Khan, um, who died in 1890, even controlled the princely state of Bhopal for a period of time. Indian Salafis educated Arabian scholars from Najd in Yemen and offered patronage to Arab students and scholars in the form of scholarships and jobs. It is in India that many of the core texts of the Salafi and indeed the Muslim canon 
were first edited and published, and the Salafis were amongst the earliest Muslims to use the printing press for this purpose. Today, the Ahli Hadith represent the third most important movement among India's uh, Sunni Muslims, after the Barilvis and the Deobandis, the two other organized Sunni groups in South Asia. The relationship between the Salafis of India and Saudi Arabia has been very strong throughout the 20th century and remains so until today. At the time of the kingdom's founding, in 1932, we find a number of Indian Salafis playing an important role in the establishment of educational institutions in Mecca and Medina. One of these, the Dar al-Hadith in Medina, was founded in 1931 by the Indian scholar Ahmad ibn Muhammad al-Dihlavi. Also op- he also opened a branch of the same institution in Mecca in 1932. Indian Salafis promoted King Abdulaziz's claims and legitimacy abroad, and also propagated Salafi teachings inside the country and overseas. But as noted above, by the 1960s, the kingdom had become richer and its missionary efforts more organized, which which resulted in a reversal of the direction of influence and patronage. Saudi Arabia would now come to direct and support the Salafis in India and elsewhere. This development represents one of the historical reversals of the contemporary period, giving Arabia a centrality in terms of intellectual and political influence it has not enjoyed since the year 656 of the Common Era with the death of the third caliph, Uthman ibn Affan. The modern period is really a very radical break with the past, especially in Arabia. The Saudi kings built important teaching institutions in India, such as the Jami'a Salafiyya in Varanasi, this one. They built it, they established this in 1963. Of course, Varanasi is a major Hindu pilgrimage city and would later also fund Salafi institutions and associations in New Delhi, Bihar, and in southern India. When I visited the Salafi college in Varanasi, I noted commemorative plaques, not dissimilar to the ones on view at any major U.S. university, thanking three Saudi monarchs for funding different buildings and the library. So this is another picture of the university, and these are some of the commemorative plaques with the names of the Saudi kings highlighted. There's nothing concealed about the strong and intimate ties that bind the kingdom to this movement in India, its scholars and its institutions. Numerous videos on YouTube can be watched, recording the dedication commemoration ceremonies for new building centers and graduating classes at which senior Saudi scholars are present and offering speeches and plaudits for the missionary efforts of India's Salafis. These institutions teach tens of thousands of students from elementary grades through postgraduate degrees. They also fund the editing and publication of hundreds of Salafi titles, such as the, such books uh, as by Ibn Taymiyyah, Muhammad Abdulhab, Indian Salafi scholars. Some of these are on traditional subjects and topics, such as the condemnation of the visiting of graves. Others are on theology and law. They are in Arabic, in Urdu, in Hindi, and so on. I've conducted fieldwork research in a number of these institutions and interviewed many of the uh, leading Indian Salafis, as well as students, teachers, and missionaries. While all of these men are intimately aware of the global Salafi debates and trends, including those amongst the jihadists, when asked about their own political engagement in India, they have uniformly stated they are deeply involved in national and local politics. One of their leaders, for example, Abdul Hamid Rahmani, here, this gentleman, said the following, Muslims suffer discrimination in India, but we have a constitution here, and I represent a vote bank. I mobilize my followers to vote in elections so that we can obtain our rights and our due from the system. 
It's not, this is not what you associate with Salafis, right? Rahmani was a member of the Muslim World League on the board of other Saudi-funded institutions and openly received support from the kingdom. But he was also deeply engaged in Indian politics, principally in the effort to educate and uplift his country's Muslims, who are socially and politically marginalized. The combination of local political engagement with social and religious activism is a hallmark of the Saudi missionary activities effort, missionary effort. In return, the Saudis expected from their protégés public support of their state as the legitimate guardian and lead, leader of Sunni Islam. This, by the way, is a picture of the same gentleman, Rahmani, here, with a Saudi scholar at the dedication of this university and school in Delhi. And this is the kind of stuff they have. They have a presence online. They have a Facebook page. They have magazines in English and, and also how to apply to the university. They have magazines in Arabic and in Urdu. And these are some of their publications. Here I chose the book on jihad by uh, Ibn Taymiyyah. Um, so let me just go back to this. Now let me talk about Saudi Arabia and Muslims in the United States. Briefly, something similar to the Indian example has taken place in the U.S., According to a recent dissertation by Jeff Jamant, uh, the Saudi effort to sponsor financially and to help organize Muslims in America began in the mid-1970s, after the oil price boom of 1973, which provided considerable resources for this purpose. There were virtually no Salafis in the U.S. at the time, and the Muslim community was disorganized and ethnically and racially divided. The plurality of Muslims were then African-Americans, the Nation of Islam, a heterodox movement, was undergoing an up, uh, a split after the death of its founder, Elijah Muhammad, in 1975. His son, Din Muhammad, uh, was attempting to reorient his followers towards mainstream Sunni beliefs. The Saudis saw an opportunity and supported this effort financially, but also offered scholarships, funds for mosques, and organized national conferences for Muslims. They also strongly encouraged Din Muhammad, um, they encourage his American patriotism, although not his neutrality on, on matters relating to Middle Eastern politics, such as his unwillingness to condemn Khomeini and the Iranian Revolution. They expected support for their own political causes, and this created friction with some of the American Muslims. More broadly, the Saudis appeared to have played a direct and indirect role in the de-radicalization of African-American politics. For example, they did not support any group that held political views that could be construed as anti-American or critical of U.S. foreign policy. One other way in which they did this was to encourage the development of transnational ties, beginning in the early 1990s and lasting until today, between fiercely quietist Saudi scholars like Sheikh Rabi' al-Madkhali and the then nascent Salafi African-American community, whose center was at first in New Jersey and has since moved to Philadelphia. Furthermore, the American graduates of the Islamic University of Medina have established teaching centers in the U.S., and these have actively discouraged and been critical of the views of the global jihadists. It is noteworthy, for instance, that not one of the so-called lone wolf attacks in the U.S. since 9-11 have involved Salafis who are associated with Saudi-sponsored or, Saudi or, or affiliated institutions in America. Now let me say something about the what I call the theological of politics. How do you theologize politics? 
Given that the Saudi political and religious authorities eschewed, they rejected activists and radical political engagements, how did these forms of politics enter the world of Salafism? And more specifically, Saudi Salafism? To answer this question, we have to look to two modern Islamist ideologues who were independently drawing on Ibn Taymiyyah's teachings, the teachings of the, of the 14th century Syrian scholar, for their own political projects. They were drawing on his teachings for their own political projects. Neither uh, Maududi nor Qut were Salafi or Saudi. Uh, one was Indo-Pakistani, uh, an Indo-Pakistani political leader and thinker, Abu al-Ala al Maududi, and the other is the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood ideologue Sayyid Qutb, who died in 1966. To understand their novel contribution, actually an interpolation, one must recall Ibn Taymiyyah's signature teaching, which has to make, which had, sorry, which was to make true faith dependent on the exclusive worship of God, monolatry. Maududi and Qutb took the concept of monolatry to argue that all political systems, which do not make God the sovereign, um, are intrinsically infidel and polytheistic because they violate that theological principle of monolatry. Such states are those in which God is not truly worshipped because God's rule, his rule, is not established and his law is not implemented. Only a state that bases all law on divine revelation, what is known as the Sharia or God's law, fulfills the requirement of monolatry or exclusive worship of God. Thus, they were advocating for a system of rule based on God's law, also known as theonomy. Any society or individual that does not abide by this tenet of the faith is regarded as abrogating the principle of monolatry and is therefore considered to be an infidel. On this basis, any system of governance that draws its principles and laws from non-Islamic rules and laws, for example, democracy, nationalism, socialism, positive legislation, all of these are deemed un-Islamic and therefore illegitimate. This is how politics became theologized. At least two generations of Saudis, not to mention other Arabs and Muslims, were captivated by the ideas of Maududi and especially those of Qutb. They wanted to see a muscular Islamic ideology responding to the challenges posed by secular liberal and capitalist culture, as well as Marxist socialist thought, and offering Islamic solutions to the questions of modernity and economic development. It's not clear that Qutb's admir admirers were fully aware that his theological innovation would help lead to militant Islamist groups advocating forms of unconstrained violence. Certainly no one in the 1970s or the 1980s thought that Saudi Arabia or the U.S. would become a target of attack by Sunni advocates of jihad. A number of scholars from the, from the official religious establishment in Saudi Arabia, such as the Grand Mufti Ibn Baz, even praised Sayyid Qutb in the 1970s, despite the latter's non-Salafi views on many matters. These non-Salafi views can be gleaned, for example, from in Qutb's allegorical interpretations of certain verses of the Quran. Qutb was not a Salafi in the theological sense. He was not a strict constructionist. In other words, as I said, not a real Salafi, but his polemical oeuvre was greatly appreciated as a rhetorically powerful rejoinder to Arab nationalism and socialist ideologies. And the Saudi political system, seeing itself as quintessentially Islamic, with such, with such slogans as, the Quran is our constitution, felt no threat from the ideological, theological innovation that Maududi at first and then Qutb elaborated. 
so much so that Qutb's books were being freely distributed by Saudi embassies around the world in the 1970s. Although not properly a Salafi, he was seen as an in-house ideologue. And because he was executed or martyred by Nasser in 1966, he would no longer pose a challenge by coming up with new ideas and criticisms of the Saudis. In hindsight, the Saudi leadership, both political and religious, and religious proved naive by not realizing the radical potentials embedded in Qutb's ideas with respect to their own claims to authority. Until, the late uh, until late in the 1980s, they did not appear to realize that his critique, which was intended for secular regimes of unbelief, could also be directed at the Saudi system itself for not living up to the ideals of monolatry and theonomy. This realization dawned on them sometime during and after 1990, when Iraq invaded Kuwait, and when most of the Muslim Brotherhood organizations around the world sided with Saddam and not with Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, despite the long support both countries had provided the Brotherhood. The perception of betrayal was accompanied by the appearance at the same time in Saudi Arabia of a domestic Qutbist-inspired opposition movement called the Sahwa, or the Awakening. But in the lead-up to, uh, to this deception, the Saudi government had encouraged Islamist ideologies and provided as asylum from at least the 1950s for persecuted Islamists from throughout the Arab world. And Riyadh had also used Sunni Islamic sentiment as a mobilizing force against external aggressors from at least the 1960s. The opportunity for Saudi Arabia to engage in campaigns of Islamic solidarity presented itself because of two separate events that took place in 1979, a watershed year for the entire Middle East. The first event was the Iranian Revolution and its Islamist ideology based on Khomeinism, which vilified the Saudi state for being a lackey of the West Ayatollah Khomeini made no secret of his hatred of the Saudi royal family, as when he referred to them as, quote, the savages of Najd and the camel grazers of Riyadh, unquote, or when he wrote the following in his last will and testament. This is Ayatollah Khomeini. We note that each year King Fahd of Saudi Arabia spends a good deal of wealth, uh, a good deal of the wealth of the people in printing the Holy Quran and considerable publicity and propaganda, uh, propaganda material in support of anti-Quranic ideas propagating the baseless and superstitious cult of Wahhabism. King Fahed abuses the Quran, urges negligent people and nations to side with the superpowers. He uses the noble Quran and the holy book to destroy both. The threat of Khomeinism was similar to Nasserism in its anti-imperial and populist claims, but it was phrased in an Islamic idiom. For the Saudi leadership, the answer to Khomeinism was close at hand. Iran is a Shiite country and Khomeinism is rooted in Shiism. And the, Salafis, and the Salafis have a formidable theological arsenal for excoriating such sectarian heresy. In fact, one might argue that Iran's Shiite ideology proved a boon for the Saudi leadership because it helped reinforce and galvanize its Sunni base of support, both within the kingdom and overseas. The second important event of 1979 was the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which also triggered a Saudi response. The Saudis mobilized financial, political, and ideological resources to encourage an Islamic campaign, which included volunteer Arab fighters against the Soviets, ultimately helping to defeat the Soviets in, in 1989. Afghanistan's invasion provided an opportunity for the Saudis to accomplish three goals simultaneously. One, to burnish their Islamic credential and, credentials and bona fides, 
by coming to the aid of an occupied Muslim people and land. Two, to solidify Saudi Arabia's political and military alliance with Pakistan, through whose territory and security services the aid to Afghanistan was channeled. And three, to coordinate and collaborate with their ally and supporter, the United States, to help defeat America's Cold War enemy. The idea did not occur to either the Saudis or the Americans that the borderlands of Afghanistan and Pakistan would become the crucible for the emergence of an ideologically hybrid militant movement that combined Qutbist political activism and Salafi theological puritanism. This is, of course, Al-Qaeda, which would go on to fight a global jihad against the American and, Saudi, and the Saudi governments, one can make the claim that the Saudis and the Americans are reaping what they sowed. But this is not entirely fair, since it was not obvious to anyone at the time that encouraging Islamic sentiments of solidarity would become such an incendiary political ideology. Moreover, Qutbism, despite the support the Saudis have given it, had an independent genesis and an autonomous trajectory that more closely tied it to the authoritarian politics in Egypt Algeria Syria, and Syria, among other places. It is not a Saudi export. And as Gregory Gauz of Texas A&M has argued, Sunni jihadist groups, unlike their Shiite counterparts, which are controlled by Tehran, are not institutionally and hierarchically connected to the Saudi state, such that it can control them. If the Saudis ever had control over such groups, and I don't believe they did, it lost it sometime in the 1980s, according to Gauss. In short, the genesis and trajectory of jihadism is complex and cannot be reduced to Saudi Arabia alone. But, when, what, but, what nonetheless, but what is nonetheless intriguing is the question of why most jihadists claim to be Salafis. So why are so many jihadists Salafis? One of the sources of confusion about Saudi Arabia's role in the global jihadist phenomenon is the fact that most jihadists, as I said, from Al-Qaeda to ISIS, but not the Taliban, explicitly declare themselves to be Salafi. Their online creedal statements, for example, show this to be the case. And since Saudi Arabia is the putative bastion of Salafism, is it not reasonable to assume that the jihadists are all products of Saudi, of the kingdom's teachings on Islam? This is a fair error for those who are not familiar with the complexities of Islamic thought and politics. There are several reasons that Salafism is appealing to jihadists and that have no direct relation to Saudi Arabia. First, there is the Qutbist doctrine outlined above uh, or earlier, which gives Salafism a hard political edge and a target to attack. All states that don't apply Islamic law are infidel and must be toppled. It's just, it's just that simple. Second, and more important, is that Salafism has an interpretive methodology and a loose structure of authority that proves particularly appealing and useful to jihadists. The hermeneutics, that is the interpretive methodologies of Salafism, are literalists and allow those who claim and cite the authority of texts of revelation, namely the Quran and Hadith, to, jump, to trump human authority. By human authority, I mean the views and rulings based on precedent and tradition, rather than textual literalism. A jihadist Salafi might phrase it something like this. So here I'm speaking as a jihadist Salafi. Who are you, O Sheikh X, to tell me that the rule on jihad is such and such when the texts of the Quran and the Hadith say this, say the following. You are a vile backsliding scholar of the infidel tyrant and not a scholar of God's law. 
You lack principle, and all you purport is intended to legitimize the rule of tyranny, and therefore you are a slave to man and rather than being a slave to God. So this is how a jihadist would speak to a scholar of the Saudi state. And because the text is the ultimate source and arbiter of truth, jihadists refuse to accept traditional hierarchies of uh, a scholarly authority. They exist in, an, in interpretive communities that have very shallow structures of authority without institutional backing or a rich legacy of scholarly transmission and instruction. Knowledge production is unmediated, or so the jihadist Salafis claim. Quite often, jihadist ideologues are very young men, and some are autodidacts. As one can imagine, such features have led to fragmentation and atomization of authority, with competing views and internecine quarrels among the, quote, correct interpretation on any given matter. Among the issues under dispute, for example, are whether lay Shiites, that is the unlearned Shiites, constitute a legitimate target of attack, or whether a caliphate can be declared, and how, or whether burning people alive is an appropriate punishment for, for certain crimes. Interpretive chaos appears to reign among the global jihadist community, and this seems to generate ever more extremist positions, sort of an outbidding process amongst jihadists, in the name of purity and true faith. A token of this centrifugal phenomenon can be apprehended by a recent and even more radical development among jihadist ideologues. For some jihadists, Salafism no longer provides an appropriate, an appropriate interpretive framework. And instead, they have adopted Zahirism, an even more literalist and long-defunct sect, as a more appropriate interpretive methodology. So we see a bunch of Zahiris now appearing all over the jihadist world. In effect, these men are claiming that Salafism is too pliant and that a move further to the interpretive right is necessary. Let me conclude. The argument in this paper is quite simple. Jihadism cannot be understood as a Saudi export, but rather it is a product of a complex history and a set of political and ideological developments in the broader Middle East and the Islamic world. The Saudi record of using religion for reasons of state is multifaceted, and the, and the policies of the Saudi state were never intended to produce global jihadism, but rather to foster a network of supporters for the Saudi claim to be the legitimate leader of the Sunni Islamic world and to serve American interests. It's always important for you to realize that serving American interests was fundamental to the Saudi missionary activity. Moreover, the Saudi state has promoted a politically quietist, albeit intolerant, version of the faith. And as the Indian and American examples I provided earlier show, Saudi Arabia's Salafi protégés have shunned militancy and radicalism with respect to their own governments and societies, as well as with respect to the rest of the world. These supporters were, however, expected to help in the fight against competing ideologies, such as Nasserism and Arab nationalism, and the struggle against the Soviets and in the struggle, uh, uh, and communism and socialism, and to help America in the struggle against the Soviets during the Cold War. There are affinities between jihadism and Salafism, but these have more to do with the nature of authority and the forms of interpretation that jihadists prefer, rather than with Saudi sponsorship. In other words, there's an intrinsic appeal to Salafism for the jihadists. I will end with two questions that might help trigger the discussion in the question and answer period. First question I ask is, why is it that most jihadists today come from countries such as Tunisia, 
which has the highest per capita um, recruits uh, to, to ISIS in the world. Libya, Egypt, Syria, Iraq, all of these countries were and are authoritarian dictatorships that did not countenance nor permit Saudi missionary activity. Where are the Saudi-funded mosques and madrasas in this country? There's not a one mosque that was funded by the Saudis in any of these countries. I would proffer that this phenomenon signals that something other than Saudi funding and missionary activity is at work here. And my second question to you is, if the jihadists are indeed a product of Saudi policy, why have they, from at least the mid, early mid-1990s, targeted Saudi Arabia as the principal enemy of their cause? Surely we cannot believe that the Saudi leadership is complicit in its own destruction. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.